Mindfulness Mode 207. My desk was literally floating in the middle of the ocean. My computer with all my protocols was somewhere deep, deep in the sea. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on today's Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Hey, Mindful Tribe. Thank you so much for coming back to listen to episode 207. Last time, I had Daniel Geffen on the show. He was an amazing guest. I really felt like I resonated with him. And I think you'll enjoy the interview too because he just offered so much value. It's one of my longer interviews. And uh, I just think you'll really enjoy episode 206. But today, I have a fascinating woman who actually served as a professor in Oprah's happiness course. She has done so much. She's worked with Google, NASA, the U.S. Army, and she's really all about happiness, all about mindfulness. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's episode with Amy Blankson. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I am really excited to have Amy Blankson with me today. Hey, Amy, are you in mindfulness mode? I am in mindfulness mode, and I am excited to be joining you here today. That's super. Amy Blankson is a happiness researcher and consultant. She's worked with Google, NASA, and the U.S. Army, and also served as a professor in Oprah's happiness course. Amy has been acknowledged by two former U.S. presidents for creating a movement to activate positive culture change. Increased technology can interfere with our efforts to be mindful, and Amy's recent book, entitled The Future of Happiness, addresses this issue head-on, so we'll be talking about that. Amy, it's really great to have you with us today. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. It is a good, uh, good start to the week, and I'm really excited to get to have this conversation. That's super. Me too. So, Amy, let's start here. What does mindfulness mean to you? What a great question to start with. So mindfulness to me, it means being aware of your own self. I think about that idea that was inscribed on the temple of Apollo way back in ancient Greek times, and it was to know thyself. And I think mindfulness is all about figuring out how do we increase awareness of our own body, of our mind, of what's going on around us. And by tuning in to ourselves, that really helps elevate our ability to understand and contribute to the world around us. Well, it really does. And when you say that, I I notice right away that that's one of the topics in your book. And you have five specific strategies that you outline for your readers. Would you briefly mention those five strategies for Mindful Tribe, Amy? Absolutely. So I came up with five strategies that I felt like were things that I had discovered through my research that were the top strategies that people who balance productivity and well-being in the digital era, these are five things that they do really well. And so as I dug into the research and really thought about how to teach my followers and my readers, my listeners about how to engage better with technology, these are the five things I wanted to share. So my first strategy is to stay grounded, which means really focusing in on creating an intention and awareness for mindful living. 
Um, number two is to know thyself and knowing thyself in terms of my book is really about digging into what's called the quantified self. How do we know ourselves through numbers that we're now getting through technology? How can technology actually help us to be more mindful and conscious? Um, and strategy number three was to train your brain. It's all about how do you help your brain to increase your baseline for happiness, but also specifically to use the technology available to us now, whether it's apps, devices, or wearables to actually elevate mindset. Strategy number four was to create a habitat for happiness, which is looking at how do we align our worlds, our, whether it's workplace or school, the places we play, the places that we live, our homes, how do we actually shape them for happiness from a physical standpoint? How can our environment help influence our happiness levels? And strategy number five was all about innovating consciously. And it's that meta chapter where I think about how do you get beyond yourself? How do you think about your happiness in, in the perspective of the broader world around you? And what does that mean? How do you go about shaping the future of happiness so that we can live and create a world that we're not only excited about living in, but also sets up the future really well for generations to follow? Um, so that's the, the, the quick overview of the five strategies. And I can't wait to dig in more with, uh, with the readers and listeners so that they can understand what this research means for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a great overview for sure. One of the points you make in your book is that our brains are becoming confused by the artificial lights from devices and screens, and it throws off our natural circadian rhythms. What can we do about this, Amy? So this idea comes from the, a story that I share in the book about how in Florida, in Fort Lauderdale, there are a number of hatchlings from sea turtles. I love sea turtles. Um, and so I was excited to discover the story in my research process. And what happened with the sea turtles was that as the beachfront properties began to develop in Florida, there was more and more artificial lights. And when a sea turtle is hatched, they see these lights and they immediately start walking towards them because instinctually through evolution, these turtles wound up following the light of the stars and the moon to figure out where the ocean was so that they could make it to safety. But when the artificial lights emerged in, in Florida, the sea turtles were immediately going towards the highway lights and the beachfront properties, and about 50% of all hatchlings were dying. So this is, um, it's, a, it's an uh, endangered species already. So to have 50% of the hatchlings dying was a major issue. And so there was this um, ordinance put, up, put forward by the city of Fort Lauderdale saying that they were going to shut off all beachfront lighting from 9 p.m. on. And there was an outcry in the community because people were like, hey, you know, this is our, this is our community. Tourism is a, a big part of life here. And other advocates of um, environmental awareness were saying, no, you know, this is an endangered species. We have an obligation to protect something that's so rare and beautiful in our environment. And so there was uh, some high tension there for several years until in 2011, there was a company that came forward with a brilliant new solution called Turtle Friendly Lights. And all they did was use a low cost bulb that was amber colored so that the turtles couldn't see it, but still enabled the beachfront properties to have their evening lights so that they can 
and attract tourists and keep things safe in the neighborhood. And it was a beautiful win-win solution. It was a, a perfect example for me of innovating consciously where you're thinking about how you can better set up your environment so that everybody can thrive in it. So I use that story as a way to think about how we interact and respond to all of the new screen time that's entered in our lives. If you imagine ourselves as hatchlings who just 10 years ago didn't know what a smartphone was, and now you know, I think it's 88% of the United States has a smartphone of some sort. Um, so in 10 years, we have had a massive shift in the amount of artificial light that's entered our lives. And so when we get lost and we get misdirected by being pulled into so much screen time, whether it's reading under the covers at night or it's um, playing on the iPad and seeing our children play on the iPad until all hours of the night or even schools that are constantly um, having to teach kids through technology, figuring out how do we balance those those poles is really important. And I think that a lot of times we hear from people that it would be more important to um, get rid of technology, that it's in our lives, it's not helping, it's it's causing problems, it's creating disconnection, we get addicted, so we just need to stop. And my research shows that it's actually not that effective to just stop cold or get rid of technology, nor is it something that I think is really a realistic option at this point. I think technology is here to stay. I think it adds a lot when we use it appropriately. So the key is to figure out how do we find that win-win for ourselves? How do we know that screen time is prevalent in our lives, but then take a step back and say, okay, we're going to create some new um, conscious innovation to help us really live in a better, more cohesive life with technology, knowing that we're thinking through when, where, why, and how we're using technology to elevate our mindset and not just to zone out or to drain us um, and and have all the negative by, byproducts there. Right. That makes sense. So do you recommend wearing the amber glasses in the evening when using a smartphone? You know, you are the first person that's ever asked me that. And I honestly have not researched that, but it's fascinating. I mean, I know it works for turtles, but I'm not sure what that would mean for us. So I'm going to have to explore that a little bit more. Right. I've had uh, a number of other guests who have talked about wearing the amber glasses and that they that they do that every evening and it really helps them to sleep properly and they feel more rested. And so I got a pair and I have tried it and my son's been wearing them as well. So I think it does make a difference, but it'd be interesting to find out what you determine from this as well, Amy. So thanks for I'm sharing all that. Out. Yeah, <laughs> sure. and it's it's great story about the sea turtles as well. So in your book, Amy, you talk about the happiness cliff and you say sometimes we become so engrossed in our diversions that we don't notice that they're no longer making us happy anymore. Can you go into a little bit more depth on this for Mindful Tribe? Absolutely. So this is one of my favorite concepts and I I actually came up with the idea of the happiness cliff while watching an episode of Looney Tunes with my kids. Um, If you have ever seen Looney Tunes, you know um, Wiley Coyote is forever trying to get to the Roadrunner. And he is constantly dashing off trying to chase her and winds up 
I think every single episode he winds up running off of a cliff and he he looks down all of a sudden and realizes that his legs have been going so fast that he ran right off the cliff and then there's nothing underneath them anymore. So he just drops to um, into a giant splat in the bottom of a canyon. Right. And of course, the roadrunner is just smiling snarkily from up on the top of the cliff, um, <laughs> knowing very strongly where the edge of the cliff was and being able to stop on a dime. And so the idea of the happiness cliff for me really came to life with that visual imagery because what happens is that we use technology and we're having so much fun or we're getting so much out of it that we keep using it and we use it for so long that we've actually run right off the happiness cliff before we know it. If you think about, say, Facebook, you might be checking in on your friends what's going on with status updates on Facebook. And the next thing you know, 45 minutes has passed. And probably 15 minutes in was your maximum happiness level balance. Um, and then the another, another 30 minutes passes before you realize, actually, I've just been wasting time and I'm not even sure what I'm doing anymore. Um, so my goal through this chapter is to really help readers understand that there is a point of what we call diminishing return. And that point of diminishing return says that your productivity level doing an activity is actually more like a curve, that the more time um, and investment that you make in in a particular activity, you would think that it would create an upward curve. But in fact, what happens is that there's a downward curve on the backside, which means that if you use something like Facebook for too long, you start to lose the benefit and actually decrease your productivity over time. So my goal here is to help people understand, yes, there's a hap- there's a point, there's a, there's a line where you fall off the cliff. So let's think about where is that line for me? And it's important that readers understand or listeners understand that the happiness cliff can change day to day. It can change activity to activity. It can change domain to domain, which means that if you are a surgeon at work, you might get a lot of benefit out of using the latest technology for eight hours a day. And that's the maximum utility. Whereas if you are doing Facebook at home, your utility might be only 15 minutes. So being aware of what you're using the technology for helps you to find that cliff and to be aware of it. And I think if we're able to train our own selves as well as our our children and future generations where that line is, it can help us to really create better set of boundaries all around us, knowing knowing that that's something that impacts us and helps us feel um, either more or less effective. When I talk about this, I always bring up this interesting statistic that I uncovered that said that the average smartphone user checks their phone, they open and close it or unlock it 150 times a day on average, which means that if you take even one minute to open and close your phone and check whatever message just came through, if you multiply that by the 150 times a day, that's two and a half hours of distraction every day. And if you multiply that by the 365 days a year, you're spending 38 days a year just opening and closing your phone. I mean, that's crazy, right? Like, it is crazy. 38 crazy. days a year. Man, that's, right? That's insane. It, it's insane. Or even just that two and a half hours. I mean, yeah. I can really quantify that in my life when I think about, okay, what am I hoping to accomplish today? I've got so much going on. Um, somehow every time a message comes through on my phone, I feel the need to check it as if it's going to make me more productive. And what we're discovering through the research is that 
Individuals who check their email only three times a day are not only more productive than individuals who check constantly, but they actually are happier and have lower stress as well. And so for me, that's a wake up call that says, okay, maybe my happiness cliff for checking my phone, let's try to limit it to say 30 times a day. That seems more manageable to me. Um, but it's, it's hard to train our brains. This is a new skill set for us that we haven't had to learn. We didn't have any reason to know this in the past, but it's going to be something that I think we all need to learn for the future. And one of the apps that's really helped me to learn where my happiness cliff is, is called break free app. And the break free app not only counts how many times I lock and unlock my phone, but it can also let me self enable some limitations. So if I get to 25 times of opening and closing, it'll say, Hey, you know, you're, you're approaching your limit, maybe slow down or think about what you're doing before you do it. Um, or it can show me how long I've spent on different apps and give me some higher level of awareness and mindfulness about what those apps are doing, how long I've spent on them, how long I want to spend. And also another bonus feature is that I can monitor my children as well, um, knowing how often they're on different apps and programs and on their phones so that I can help them understand better too. Because I have an obligation as a parent to really teach my kids something that I struggle with now. I want them to do better than I'm doing currently. Um, And so this would make a huge difference. That would make a, a huge difference. And I know exactly what you mean, Amy, with my son. It's really important for me to make sure I'm setting a good example. And speaking of good examples, you've got so many positives in your book about how to live successfully in this digital world. And one of the things I want to talk about is being a digital humanitarian. Would you explain that to Mindful Tribe? Oh, yes. So the idea of the digital humanitarian is that there are individuals who use their time on the on the, on the computer, on their phone, um, any time on the Internet to try to make a difference for other people. And there's a, a field emerging now called digital humanitarians. So one example of a digital humanitarian is somebody who helps after a natural disaster to help upload maps to a certain remote area. So when the earthquake in Nepal happened, the rescue aid workers were really struggling to be able to reach individuals in need because there wasn't a strong Google Maps program. Like here in the United States, we we don't really have this issue because the U.S. has been so well mapped through Google Maps or other mapping type programs. But right. in Nepal, that that grid hasn't been created yet or it wasn't at that time. And so what digital humanitarians did was actually spend time mapping and uploading and and really focusing in on that region so that they could in real time help the aid workers get to the individuals who needed help, which is amazing, right? Um, And I know this from personal experience because I lived in Biloxi, Mississippi during Hurricane Katrina, and I was working for the United Way at that point. And my job for that summer was actually to create the protocol for emergency response for the region. And, you know, I was an intern at that point. I didn't really see my role as that crucial. I was creating a policy guide and it seemed very straightforward, but I had no idea how soon my policies were going to be put to the test. And uh, about three months into living in Biloxi, that's when Hurricane Katrina hit. And it was both um, sad and almost humorous at that time because when the crisis hit, my desk was literally floating in the middle of the ocean. My computer with all my protocols was 
somewhere deep, deep in the sea. And all I remembered was the phone tree that we had set up. And so I started calling the other staff members. We couldn't even find our executive director for about three days. And fortunately, she was fine. But it was because the cell phone lines were down and because there was no um, infrastructure at that point created that people could access each other should the grid go completely down. It was just beyond imagination. It wasn't something we ever thought could happen. And so what was amazing was that there were so many digital humanitarians who stepped forward in the crisis to help us set up um, online online giving campaigns so that we could get donations to help rebuild our area, which was huge. We had individuals who helped create um, and rebuild a system so that we could have an active phone tree and then know what the chain of command was and which organizations were up and running. We had programs to help individuals identify where to go get cold water. Um, and so programs like that became crucially responsible, uh, responsive crucial to the responsiveness of the area because had that not existed, the crisis would have lasted infinitely longer. Um, there's been other great humanitarian projects though, whether it's being able to help individuals who lack prosthetic hands in need. Um, there's an organization that I adore called Enable Outreach. And Enable is this uh, nonprofit that builds 3D printed hands using 3D printers from all over the world. Volunteers will go to their local library or their local maker space, and they will literally print to spec hands for children in need in other countries. Now, a prosthetic hand normally costs upwards of $120,000 and requires you to have access to a medical provider who can help you size and scale a hand appropriately. But right. thanks to Enable Outreach, they now are able to capture those measurements through Skype conversations, learn what kind of hand or what kind of shape they need to create, how to get a mold into the hands of makers all over the world. And then people will band together, create and print the hands, put them together, and then mail it and have a volunteer on site to be able to help fit the, the young person for a hand. I mean, that blows my mind that we are able to create that kind of globalized response to a problem and and rethink the way that we've solved problems in the past. It's so far beyond what we've ever been able to do. And so it sounds far-fetched for the average Joe out there who's like, okay, I want to make the future better, but I am not um, a scientist. I'm not an inventor. I don't know how to 3D print. I don't even have access to a 3D printer. What can I do? And there are so many things that people can do to jump in, whether it's um, just helping out by downloading an app like the Feedy app where you can take a photo of your food and in doing so you upload it and through partnerships with corporate, um, through corporate partnerships with restaurants, they'll actually donate money to organizations that help people with hunger um, through you taking a picture of your food. So little bitty things like that actually can really add up to make a large difference. And now wait, Amy, wait, yeah. taking pictures of your food. I don't quite understand how that can help someone else. Can you explain that a sure. little bit more? Sure. So the Feedy app partners up with different restaurants all over the U.S. Okay. And they say that it's sort of a marketing pitch for them, right? If okay. you are able to take a picture of your food, you yeah. upload it to social media. So you say, you know, I was at 
I'm going to say McDonald's right now. Okay. I don't know if they participate or not, but I was right. at McDonald's and I want to um, help contribute because I obviously have food and I want to help other people get food. So I take a photo of my food and and thanks, McDonald's makes a contribution to an organization that helps individuals with hunger because you're helping them market. They're helping other individuals get access to food. It's uh, it's a sort of new take like on the Tom shoes where you buy right. one see. one pair of Tom shoes for yourself. You get a pair for another people, another person. Um, this is you get a meal. Somebody else gets a meal through this corporate right. partnership. Um, I, I just love programs like that because I think that it's re re-envisioning how we've always done fundraising, how we've always reached out to people in need around our community, uh, gives us access to a whole different set of tools that enables and opens the creative mind to rethink the way that we can help other people. Well, that's great. I, I really love that app and I haven't heard of that before. So that's very cool. So Mindful Tribe, you know, check that out, the Feedy app, and because you can simply take a picture of your food and help others at the same time. That's amazing. Amy, I want to talk with you about meditation. There's so much talk about that these days and how our brains really need a break. What are your thoughts on meditation? I think meditation is crucial. It's something I continue to work on myself and have a lot of room to grow in, but it's something that I see the need for. I'm a naturally anxious person and I find that I, my brain will run off thinking of different scenarios or all that I have to accomplish or that there might be no way that I can get through everything I need to do for the day. And I find that the days that I stop to meditate first, the rest of the day goes better. Um, we know through the research of positive psychology that meditating not only increases your accuracy by 10%, but it actually helps other people in the room who are people who are on your team or that you work with experience the benefits of meditation, even if they're not the one meditating, which is something called the, the mirror neuron effect. It's the same thing that happens when I smile what makes you smile or when you yawn and then I yawn, that's called the mirror neuron effect. And it, it is sort of like an emotional contagion response to something in your environment that's happening through the mirror neurons in your brain. And for me, mindfulness is so important, not only for me, but for other people around me, how I respond as a mother or a wife or as a colleague that I have a grounding from the very beginning of the day that carries me through the end of the day. Um, we often say that meditation is, um, it's your ability to it, it build your skills of moving from this multitasking, culturally ADHD world that we live in right. to helping your brain single task for just a few minutes so that we can then go back to multitasking, which we all know we're going to do anyway. Um, <laughs> and it helps your brain to have a better sense of priorities and intention for every step that comes after it. So I think meditation and mindfulness is absolutely crucial. Right. So Amy, what form does meditation take in your life? Do you use guided meditation? Do you run? And is that your form of meditation? What is it for you personally? So I'm definitely trying to use meditation in my life on a more regular basis. I, you know, I definitely do use programs like the Muse Headband, which helps you to really calm your mind in a training program where you can see your actual progress. Because I think sometimes what happens, I, I'm not 
fabulous at focus. Um, but I feel like I will meditate for two minutes or five minutes and I don't know if I've done anything. Like I feel calmer, but I don't know quantitatively, what does this mean for me? And so I discovered the muse headband to this, uh, it's literally, it's a headband that goes over your forehead with an EE trick. EEG strip in it. And it coordinates with an app on your phone that will guide you through a five minute meditation. And in doing so, it plays something like a, you could, you can select the sound scene that you want, but it can play something like an ocean and the ocean is calm. And when your brain starts to activate more, you start to hear the waves rise up and become more active. And the goal is that your brain will be able to calm the waves And when it does so, if you're able to successfully recover your mind from that activity state, you'll hear a bird chirp. And at first I thought those birds chirping um, was a little bit distracting. They're sort of like points. It's like a gamified system. How many birds can you get to chirp? Um, (laughs) But I thought that the, the birds were a little bit distracting and I wound up actually speaking to some of the staff at Muse and they said, no, the birds are actually part of how you can train your brain to overcome even good stimuli. So even if you think, oh yes, I got a bird, I, I, you know, another point, how do you recover from that excitement so that you bring your brain back to a state of calm? And so it will gamify your progress on meditation over time and show you how much better you're getting. And for me, that's really important for somebody like fishing out there. Like, am I doing this right? I don't even know. My brain wanted it. I'm not sure. This shows me an actual graph and gives me a point number system for saying, Hey, Amy, you're getting better. You're doing this well. You're able to meditate for longer. That's really useful. Um, I've also heard people say that they meditate by taking a walk in the woods or um, singing. I like to play the piano for meditation. That's really a great way for me to zone out and refocus and think about deeper things going on in life. So if uh, if programs like Muse aren't for you, there's certainly other ways that you can go about meditation that work amazingly well for helping recenter your brain. Right. Yeah, that's for sure. I love to play the piano as well, Amy, and I do have the Muse headband, so I use that. And it's pretty amazing to get that immediate feedback. Amy, I've worked in bullying prevention for over a decade, and I've seen how mindfulness can make a huge positive difference in that whole bullying scenario. Do you have a story that you can share with us where mindfulness would have made a difference to a bullying situation? Hmm, that's a great question. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the Wisdom 2.0 conference in San Francisco, and by far the best speaker I heard at the conference was Jewel, the singer-songwriter. And Jewel talked about how when she was younger, she had a lot of family trauma going on in her world, um, alcohol, abuse, uh, parents in and out of her life. And it led her to sort of being rough and tough. She wound up at the age of 16 living out of her car for quite some time until her car was stolen. And it was like one thing after another of just awful things happening to this poor girl who didn't have a lot of support in her life at that point. And she stumbled upon mindfulness and meditation um, at that young age as a way to deal with this world around her. And she talked about how she um, she actually found herself in the dressing room one day where she was trying to steal a dress and she was trying to hide it under her clothes by stuffing this dress that she found in a store window. She loved it. She was stuffing it into her jeans pants and trying to put a big jacket on over her outfit because she 
just felt like that was um, something that she couldn't live without. It would make her world so much happier. It's this lovely white dress that made her feel clean again. And so as she was doing that, she looked into the mirror and she realized who she'd become, how it had recreated this cycle of poverty and this, this systemic sort of violence and thought pattern that she didn't want to have in her life. And she said that she felt like she had gotten to that place through mindfulness, that even at that young age with so much going on in her world, the ability to step back and to see herself from the outside really created a different perspective on her life. And she talks about how she was really, um, she was, she was that bully. She was the individual who was trying to protect herself from so many things entering her world and encroaching on her own sense of self-efficacy and self-worth that she reacted and responded. And I think that that really spoke volumes to me about how she was able to come to that place of awareness. I think it's not always such an elevated story. We often hear, um, here are young people who are going through the bullying process and you try to steel yourself against the bully. But mindfulness makes me really think about how the bully can transform. Um, so to give you one other personal story, my, uh, my brother and I, Sean Acor, he and I wrote a book called Ripple's Effect, which is a children's book about um, it's about anti-bullying. It's about the story of a dolphin who teaches a shark how to smile. And in the story, the shark continues to bully the dolphin because he sees her always smiling and he's jealous and he just, it makes him angry. And so he kind of picks on her. Um, and so Sean and I take this book to elementary schools. We read it all over the world. And I will never forget this one time I was reading the story in an elementary school and this little first grade boy, um, raised his hand at some point in the story. And he said, I'm a shark. I was born mean. And he said it with this sense of pride that he was so excited that he could be like a, the mean old shark. And it, it sort of gave me pause and broke my heart in that moment because I realized that here he was at this young age and he'd already decided that his genes were going to dictate his future and who he could be. And so we talked with him during the session about how you, you actually aren't born mean. That's something you take on, but that happiness is a choice. And that by really stopping to think about that, that it can enable you to choose a different future. That even if you're born with a lower set point for happiness, you have the ability to rise beyond your genes and your environment to become somebody else. And so that day I was able to um, do the mirror neuron experiment that we do with audiences all over the globe, where you try to um, have one person with a, a neutral straight face, not show any emotion. And the other person looks in their eyes and tries with all of their might using their smile to get the other person to smile. And by the end of that library reading um, exercise, that little boy was all smiles. He had gotten to experience what was like, what it was like to have his friends make him smile and for him to be part of a broader community, that he wasn't an outsider. He wasn't the bully. He didn't have to become that person, but he was able to become more mindful about his own personality and who he could be. And my hope is that that memory, that memory and that story will stick with him for a long time and help give him a different outcome for the future. Exactly. What a transformation. That, that is a great story, Amy. I mm -hmm. love it. Amy, I have five quick answer questions. Just 30 second answers are fine. Here's the first one. Who is one person who influenced your mindfulness practice? I would say my life coach, Chandra Moyer. She was 
very present in my life in a period when I was struggling with self-identity and trying to figure out who I was, where I was going, what my career was going to be. And not only was she a life coach, but she was somebody who invested in me personally and was able to ask some of these harder, deeper questions. And she herself, um, she spends a lot of time in prayer. She uses prayer as her form of meditation. And she taught me a lot about the importance of listening to myself, listening to my own body, Um, little things like when I would start work, I would sit down at my desk, I work out of a home office and I would be so intently focused on work that I wouldn't even realize that I was freezing. Like maybe the air conditioner had gone on and I just wasn't paying attention to the cues that my body was saying, Hey, you know, maybe it'd be great if you got a sweatshirt, we're freezing over here or turn up the air. (laughs) I was just so focused on the task at hand. And she helped me to understand the importance of tuning in to myself, my own needs, my physical needs, my emotional, my mental, my spiritual needs, so that I could really wrap my mind around that. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Amy? Mindfulness calms my mind and helps me to be able to deal with deeper emotions in a more measured and thoughtful way, through balance, through just being able to take a step back and see myself from the outside so that I can choose a different path for myself. Great. So tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness practice. Breathing is crucial to my mindfulness. Breathing is something that I tend to stop doing in the moment when I get stressed out. And I don't even realize that I am um, getting more and more anxious and tense because I'm an anxious person naturally. Breath is the absolute most essential key to helping me to get oxygen into my system so that I can think clearly and straightly, which is amazing and super important. Well, I know your book is fantastic on mindfulness. Please mention that, but also, could you recommend any other books on the topic of mindfulness? Absolutely. So right now on my desk, I just ordered this book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. And I ordered it when I heard some friends talking about um, this amazing idea that Cal came up with called uh, attention residue. And it's the idea that we are so distracted in our work that we can, uh, that we lose the sense of attention and focus. And what we're trying to do is get back the residue of our attention so that we can be more sticky to the things that we really want to be sticky with. And so I'm, I'm digging into it right now, but the little I've read has been amazing. Great. I'll put that in our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. So tell me, can you uh, share an app? You mentioned an app earlier in our conversation, but uh, what app would you like to mention here, which helps you to be more mindful? Absolutely. So I, I definitely would recommend the Muse app for anybody who has never tried the Muse. It is something that for somebody who has not gotten into meditation, this is such a great training tool. If you're a long-term meditation um, expert, maybe this is not something that you need. But for somebody who's getting started, who needs to see progress, who wants to be able to quantify or understand themselves on a deeper level, this is an amazing app to try. It does require that you buy the Muse headband, but I did want to share with listeners that there is a partnership I'm starting up with Muse in the next month that will offer the opportunity for you to buy the Muse at a discounted price um, and get a copy of my book as well. So the app is um, available and the 
the Muse headband is available on my website, which is amyblankson.com slash muse. And you can check out that special offer through that website. And I want to emphasize that Muse is spelled M U S E. That's how you spell the word Muse. So yeah, that's a great opportunity. Mindful Tribe, make sure you take Amy up on this because the Muse headband is a terrific device to use. So Amy, it has been really great talking with you today. You've done so many things and you're such a great storyteller when it comes to this topic. (laughs) How do you bring happiness personally into your life? If you're kind of in a funk or you're stressed out or anxious, what's your go-to to personally bring happiness on? Gratitudes are my key. I use the idea of saying three new things that I'm grateful for every day in my own life. And some people like to say their gratitudes at bedtime or they like to write them down in a journal. I actually do my gratitudes when I get to stoplights. Um, I tend to have just a teeny bit of road rage or just impatience when I'm trying to get where I'm going. And so for me, I found that that is a great moment to rethink what's going on in my mind and to use the opportunity, what would otherwise be dead time in my life, um, to be able to be more thoughtful and mindful. And it actually helps me say more than three. I often get to 10 or even 20 stoplights in one day. So that gives me an opportunity to really practice and exercise meditation and mindfulness and gratitude all in one fell swoop. That's a great suggestion. I really like that because that'll help us slow down our pace and feel more relaxed when we're driving. Amy, how can Mindful Tribe learn more about what you do? You've already mentioned about the book, but let's mention it again, how we can connect with you. So you can visit me at amyblankson.com. I've got a lot of resources and information on my website that can help you take some of this research further in your life. I also have a spot where you can share your story with me. So if you've done something really amazing that you want to teach other people about how you've used mindfulness in your life, I would love to hear. Um, There's a a link on my site, but it's amyblankson.com slash story. And that's a great place for you to share some of your ideas with other people or visiting on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at amyblankson. So I'd love to hear from you. Yes, and Mindful Tribe, check that out for sure. A-M-Y and Blankson is B-L-A-N-K-S-O-N dot com. So check it out. Connect with Amy. Share. We all have stories. We all have stories. We just have to think about what they are. And those stories can help others. So Amy, your stories have helped Mindful Tribe today. I know they have. And your book is terrific. So I urge my listeners to check out the book as well. Thanks again for being on the show, Amy. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much, Bruce. All the best. Bye now. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.